0: My job is easy, almost ridiculously so. For ten hours a night, four days a week, I supervise a conveyor belt and perform remedial functions on a computer. In August, it'll be nineteen years that I've been working here, and I still don't know what I actually do. I mean, I know what I do every night for work, but I don't know why I do it, or what purpose it ultimately serves. I can't describe exactly what I do, because the non-disclosures I've signed forbid it, but trust me when I say you could literally train a monkey to do it if you really wanted to. The pay is ridiculously lucrative, especially considering the ease of the work. When I first started working here, I thought for sure it was going to be too good to be true, and convinced it was a scam or pyramid scheme of some kind. My checks are signed by an institution which has no trace on Google, nor in any business registries I've looked through. I've never met my boss, if I have one nor any of my co-workers aside from my driver, Dave. I don't even know the name of the business, or my position. People ask me what I do for work, and nowadays I just tell them I work for the government, and can't go into detail because it's easier than explaining the reality. But I'm not even sure if that's accurate. Before every shift, I'm picked up from my home by a box van with no logos or placards. Before every shift, I'm picked up from home, by a box van, with no logos or placards. I've known the driver for years now and he seems like a decent guy. I know him as Dave, but I don't think that's his real name. Once inside the van I put on this custom helmet designed to prevent me from seeing anything. From there, Dave drives me to the job site about 30 minutes away, he and I converse nonchalantly most of the time, usually about sports, politics, or our lives in general but never about the jobs we work. When we arrive, Dave instructs me to remove the helmet, and I find myself inside a dismal garage with a simple metal door in front of the vehicle. From there, I bid farewell to Dave and head inside to begin my shift. Beyond the door is a simple gray hallway with tiled floors. Dozens of doors line the corridor, and the faint sounds of humming machinery fill my ears as I travel to my designated office on the third floor. There are no elevators, so I take the stairs. Once I arrive at my door, I use my badge in the reader to unlock it and enter. My office consists of a little more than a small room and a few computer terminals in front of a large window. There's a personal bathroom on the left, along with a landline phone behind a glass case for emergencies. On the other side of the window is a larger chamber containing a conveyor belt and a scan station. The conveyor has a single entrance and branches to four possible exits. Every few hours, an alarm will sound and the conveyor belt will begin to move. This signifies the arrival of our product, and the only real action I see throughout my shift. A minute or two later, and a large, nondescript steel box will roll in from beyond the room. I'd never got the exact dimensions of it, but it's a perfect square, and gotta be at least four feet on every side. Once it reaches the scan station, it stops, and my task begins. From there, I use my computer to begin prepping the box for analysis. All I really have to do is use the robotic arms to ensure the testing equipment is hooked up properly. The computer does everything else, analyzing the odd, steel box for whatever its parameters are set to, and spitting out the conclusion it reaches. As mentioned, there are four possible exits from there that the box will be sent on, depending on the results of the test. Path A is the most common, with about seven out of every 10 boxes being designated for it. Path B is less common, housing maybe two out of 10, and Path C is rather rare, accounting for one out of 10 or possibly less. In my almost 19 years of employment, I've never seen Path D be used even once. This process takes maybe 10 minutes from start to finish, and generally repeats three to six times a night until my shift is over. Some nights I get no boxes at all, but those days are rather rare. As far as my employee duties goes, that's about it. Aside from keeping my workspace clean, which is rather simple, considering I'm the only one that ever goes in there as far as I know. 99% of the time I sit around at my station just killing time. It can be hard to stay awake sometimes, but I fill my downtime with various entertainment like podcasts, music, and even an occasional movie. Wi-Fi and cell reception is non-existent in the room, which sucks, but I'm almost positive it is intentional. I know I'm not the only one who does this job, but I've never seen videos of it online, or seen anyone talk about it. The contract I signed makes it clear that exposing trade secrets is grounds for immediate termination, This is why I've been intentionally vague about the process, and I've left out several crucial components of it. It's no doubt still a bad idea to post this, but I feel like I need to. I'm behind a proxy, so hopefully that's enough to mask my identity, but even if it's not, it's a risk I'll just have to take. As mentioned, the job pays very well, better than anything else I know of that requires such little training and effort. The boxes that roll in on the conveyor belt are clearly not solid steel. If they were, they'd probably weigh a few tons, and I doubt the conveyor belt array would be strong enough to hold them, let alone move them. Obviously, they are hollow, which means there is something inside them. For the longest time, I thought the boxes contained radioactive waste, such as depleted uranium. It would explain the inaccessibility of the testing chamber, as well as potentially the testing process itself. However, I'm not required to wear any special protective attire, and from what I know of radioactivity, being as such a close proximity as I am to it would require special PPE. So you may be wondering, if the pay is good, and the job is so easy, then why would you compromise it by posting this? It's a good question, and one that I've contemplated for years now. After nearly two decades of uncertainty for both myself and the people I know, I guess the curiosity has finally gotten the better of me. That, and also because something really unsettling happened recently, and I just feel like I need some answers. You may recall that I mentioned earlier how Pathway D has never been used once in all the time I've worked here, but that's not entirely true. Last week, I was in the middle of an otherwise normal shift. The alarm sounded as usual, and one of the boxes rolled in a moment later. I perked up at my desk as it approached the scan station, and noticed something odd. I've seen thousands of these boxes come and go at this point in my life, and for all I know they're recycled and reused. This one appeared different than all the others. The outer shell was scuffed, and what looked like scorch marks were engraved on the outside. It looked like someone had taken a torch to it and randomly blackened the surface from heat. I got my equipment set up and a minute or two later commenced the scan which takes about three minutes to complete. All the while, this inexplicable sense of dread overcame me. I don't know how to explain it, really, but this overwhelming sense of impending doom just sunk its teeth into the fiber of my being. Usually, the scanning process is routine, automatic, and I hardly even pay attention to it nowadays, as I've repeated it so many times over the years. That time I paid close attention, though, and I'm glad I did. I watched the readings on the scan climb, far beyond the normal threshold for an A or B. My eyes then sprung wide as it zoomed right past the C territory as well. It just kept going, into readings I had never seen and, frankly, didn't even think was possible. It quadrupled the readings that would have deemed it a C before the scan had even reached the 50% mark. Things got really weird then. The screen began to fizzle in random intervals with random blurbs of static appearing on screen for a moment, then vanishing. The screen partially distorted as well, like someone was running a powerful magnet over it. The lights in the room flickered a few times and I thought the power was going to cut out before the scan concluded. My eyes then caught sight of the item being scanned and my jaw nearly hit the floor. It was trembling, like a cell phone on vibrate getting an incoming call, but much more intense. It seemed to distort as well, growing larger and more malformed before slumping back down and nearly imploding on itself, like a lung rhythmically expanding in and out. To my surprise, the power held firm and the scan finally concluded. I looked back to the screen to see an impossibly high reading staring back at me. It was probably larger than every reading I've ever seen combined, and I didn't know what exactly to make of it. You're not real. A sudden whisper spoke into my ear as clear as day, and it sounded like it was spoken by a young boy. I nearly fell out of my chair and spun back expecting to see someone behind me, but there was nothing. I was completely alone in the room. Now on the verge of absolute panic, I decided to just return to the computer and finish my task. I just hoped that once the damn thing was gone, things would go back to normal and I could forget all about it. The D button had a protective cover over it, as to avoid inadvertently hitting it. Like I said, I'd never pressed that button before, but the results of the scan made it irrefutable that this was a D result, whatever that even means. I operated the robotic armatures to remove the scanning equipment, feeling my hand tremble on the joystick. Once they were all clear, I flipped the cover up and hit the D button without hesitation. The conveyor belt hummed to life, and I watched the metal box which had since regained its initial form slowly roll towards the exit. I had almost allowed myself to breathe a sigh of relief when the conveyor suddenly stopped. The lights flickered again, and the power cut entirely. Darkness swallowed me, and I reached into my pocket to try and grab my phone. My hands were shaking like leaves in the wind, and of course, the phone slipped from my hand, landing on the linoleum floor with a clack and skittering a few feet away. I dropped to the ground to try and find it as my eyes struggled to adjust to the darkness. On hands and knees I crawled around, but a noise caused me to suddenly freeze and drop my blood to arctic levels. I suddenly wasn't alone in the room. Breaths fell labored from an ill-defined source, raspy and harsh, like a smoker of many years who just got done running a marathon and was almost gasping for breath. It was close, but in the darkness I couldn't see it. Goosebumps sprouted along my skin, and every fear receptacle in my body seemed to begin sounding a red alert. I felt a pressure building in my chest, and my mind began racing in the darkness, but my limbs refused to react. That tense stalemate continued for an uncomfortable amount of time, but in all likelihood, it was probably less than a minute. The lights then inexplicably flickered back on, and the computer screens blipped back to life, With stinging eyes accosted by sudden light, I somehow managed to snatch my phone and scramble into the corner of the room. I was panting so hard and shaking so bad that it physically hurt. I expected to see someone, or something behind me from where I would heard the breathing, but once again there was nothing there. The computers finished rebooting, and once again returned to the operating screen. I could only think of getting that damn metal box as far from me as possible. So once again I moved to the terminal and resumed the conveyor belt before even looking into the testing chamber. When I finally did look, I felt the true tendrils of terror constrict around my brain. The box was mutilated, torn up like something that was once inside it had violently ripped its way out. That seemed to prove my theory that they were hollow all along, but of course it didn't offer any comfort because that also meant that whatever was once contained had now gotten out. I peered around at the chamber frantically, but I saw nothing. The emergency phone on the wall seemed to beckon to me, and I realized if ever there was a time to use it, it was then. I picked it up and put the receiver to my ear. The phone had no numbers on it to dial, and began to ring automatically. A second later, I heard a voice on the other end. "'Is it out?' the voice of a woman asked, cutting straight to the point." Why? Is what out? The box. What is its status? I looked back to it, seeing it once again destroyed. It's mangled. I don't know what happened. The power went out and then, did you hear it? My blood ran cold as she asked that. How would she have known there would be anything to hear? What did it say? She rephrased her question. I could only think to respond honestly. You're not real. She fell silent for a few moments on the other end, and my heart froze in my chest from anticipation. Remain calm. Assistance is on the way. The line then abruptly cut off. With a trembling hand, I set the phone back down and timidly glanced towards the window. My vision had suddenly gone blurry, but on the window, I managed to see the smudged outline of a handprint upon the glass. I must have passed out or fainted from fear after that, because next thing I know, I was waking up in a bright white room. The beeps and clicks of medical equipment filled my ears as my eyes slowly adjusted to the harsh lighting. My head was throbbing, and my body felt weak, but that may have been from some medication they had administered. No one came into the room for nearly half an hour, and I was left alone in my delirium to try and piece together what had happened, and where I even was. Finally, the door opened and in stepped a brunette-haired woman in black slacks and a blazer. Her dark brown eyes shifted behind thick-rimmed glasses, and cherry-red lipstick covered her unwavering expression. Her heels clicked on the floor as she approached, cradling a manila folder underneath her arm. Mr. Johnson, how are you feeling? I shrugged, and admitted I had a headache but felt alright otherwise. I asked her what the hell had happened, but she seemed to avoid the question as she pulled up a chair. She opened her folder and cleared her throat. Your last scan indicated the product was a D variant, is that correct? I nodded, affirming that based on the preset parameters, my analysis was indeed accurate. She seemed quite intrigued by that. Did you see anything odd? I shook my head, clarifying that the power had cut out not long after. I thought about telling her about the handprint on the glass, but for some reason decided not to. She asked me more questions about what had happened what i'd heard if i was physically hurt in my general state of mind i answered her questions as best and honestly as i could i then asked her again what had happened but once more she avoided the question after a thoroughly unsatisfactory interview she rose and took her leave she had never even bothered to tell me who exactly she was or even what her name was I assume she's a higher-up in the company, and the pamphlet she left behind seemed to confirm that. It was an unaddressed list of instructions of how I was to proceed. It basically told me to go home and rest for a week. It assured me that I was not facing any disciplinary action for the event, and would even be compensated my normal wage during the time off. The instructions suggested I avoid laborious physical exertion, sleep plentifully, and remain calm. By far the strangest instruction was to avoid mirrors, and even seeing my reflection as much as possible. I still don't know what to make of that, but I've done my best to adhere to it. The instructions said nothing in regards to secrecy or me keeping my mouth shut, and I honestly don't know what to make of that either. I guess maybe they just think no one will believe my account anyways. The letter, of course, had no signature at the bottom, and no way of indicating what entity, business, or person had written it. The final line was quite curious however, rather than saying thank you for the hard work, it said something along the lines of thank you for your contribution, maybe it was just another way of phrasing the same sentiment, but it made me wonder a few things. It's been a few days since all this happened, and as per the instructions I have been at home resting and researching like a madman, I still can't find any trace of my job online, and admittedly. I'm still not exactly sure what I do for a living. I do think I've learned a few things, though. Like I said in the beginning, I've never known what exact purpose my job serves, or why it is so well compensated. It has to be important for all the secrecy and monetary investment on the part of my employer. The work is a cakewalk, but obviously, as I've now learned, there is a danger to it. I still fully believe you could train a monkey to do it if you really wanted to or better yet, fully automize the process altogether. Most of my job involves using the robotic arms anyway, and while it would probably be a bit expensive, you could probably engineer a way to operate the entire process from a remote location and eliminate the personal risk altogether. I think that's exactly what they don't want, though. The last line of the instructions has been ringing endlessly through my mind, and I think I know what it means now. The woman that interviewed me in the hospital seemed oddly unconcerned with the state of the product, and focused more on her questions on how I myself felt. Maybe someone reasoned that that's just a responsible employer doing their part, but I think it's for a very different reason. I think her focus was never on the iron boxes as as a business investment, because the real investment was seated right in front of her, and was much more valuable. I think I am their investment and their primary objective was always studying me, and how the job would affect my psyche and overall health. I'm their guinea pig, and for nearly 19 years I have supplied them with data. This revelation, if true, leaves me in an uncomfortable situation. My first thought was of course to resign, but I don't even know if I can do that. There's just so much uncertainty around all of this. Maybe I'm just being paranoid or maybe I've read a few too many conspiracy theories, but I wouldn't rule out of them, offing me if they felt the need to. If this is some CIA enterprise or top-secret government experiment, then no doubt they would spare no expense in silencing me. That probably doesn't bode well for me even posting this to begin with, but we're beyond that point now, and I'm in danger regardless of what decision I make. I plan to go back to work, if only to satiate my unquenchable curiosity. If I'm being honest, I've always gotten quite used to the paychecks, and leaving immediately would put my family in a difficult situation. I've tried my best to adhere to the instructions and avoid mirrors. It still seems strange, but I've caught fleeting glimpses of my reflection a few times, and I don't like what I see. I keep seeing and hearing things that my wife claims are not there. Night is particularly bad, and the dreams have been quite disturbing. I'm seeing a psychologist now, and he has expressed his fears that I might be schizophrenic. I have no familial history of the disease, and before all this, I had never showed any symptoms, but now I can't deny the possibility. Hopefully it's just the lingering effects of trauma, but I'm starting to doubt that this is the case. I'll end this post with something that may or may not be related, now would be a good time to put on your tinfoil hats, because this is quite far down the rabbit hole. As with any nefarious antics, this conspiracy leads right back to the grandfathers of all douchebaggery, the Nazis. Back in late 1945, just before the Allies liberated Europe from Germany's stranglehold, something downright evil was going on in Dachau. The Nazi concentration camp in Bavaria. Whenever concentration camps are mentioned, the first one most people think of is Auschwitz, for its infamous reputation but Takau was the Nazi's crown jewel. It was the first one ever established, and held in high regard by the Third Reich, throughout the entirety of their Reign of Terror. Rumors have circulated ever since about what horrors truly went on there, but since it was in the German homeland itself, it was one of the last camps to be liberated. By the time the Allied forces reached it, the damage was done, and most of their data was already destroyed or removed. Of course, what they found there is known all too well by history, at least in terms of the utter depravity and the countless lives lost and destroyed. But there was something more. A secret project, whose mere existence is still debated by historians and conspiracy theorists alike. As far as I can tell, there is no official name for it, but most call it the Nightmare Project, or some variation of that. Now, if you know anything about the Third Reich, You'll know they were masters of psychological torment and warfare. They also dedicated a significant portion of their resources to expeditions, searching out religious artifacts and locations, but possibly more important for our purposes, researching the occult. There are numerous examples of this out there, but the one in Dachau seemed primarily focused on the development of something known as a nightmare bomb. What exactly this thing was, or how it worked, is not known but the name itself seems to offer a few clues. It was rumored to be a weapon that could obliterate human psychology and inflict a wide array of mental illnesses upon its targets. Whether it was supernatural or scientific remains to be seen, if it even exists at all, but apparently it targeted the brain directly via sonic waves of some sort. People say it could turn an otherwise healthy person into a depressed, anxious, and schizophrenic mess. For anyone reading who currently struggles with these conditions, you have my deepest sympathies. I've personally seen how difficult a diagnosis like this can be, and I'm sure you'll agree that a weapon capable of inflicting this goes far beyond what is deemed cruel and inhumane, even in terms of warfare. Evidence of all this is very hard to come by, and and most is regarded as conspiracy. Honestly, I have no real reason to assume this is even related, but it just seems so familiar. Operation Paperclip saw Nazi rocket scientists exonerated of their crimes in World War II and assimilated into NASA. So who's to say they were the only ones given that option? Considering the facility I work in, the procedures and the secrecy surrounding it all, it's clear that whatever it is I do is lucrative or informative in some way. As we all know, the military-industrial complex takes up the vast majority of the United States tax revenue and weapon development is a constant top priority. Maybe I'm reading too much into all this, but since my employer has not offered any explanations, all I can do is speculate. If anyone has any theories about all of this, please feel free to share. Honestly, I'd like nothing more than to just forget all of this and get back to my life, but I've had a lot of nightmares lately. I'm scared, and although I feel all right physically, I can't help but feel that whatever happened to me... Is not going away anytime soon. Call me macabre, but I've always been fascinated with hangings. It's not that I want to watch someone die, it's that I enjoy the history surrounding public executions. Every hanging site has its own tale to tell, and there are hundreds to explore across North America, many of which are open to the public. There's the indescribable thrill that comes with standing in an old building, knowing that not so long ago, people were climbing over one another to watch criminals die, and cheering as it happened. So really, if anyone's macabre, it's them, not me. The experience I'm sharing today is my favorite. I don't want to be cheesy and say it chills me to this day, but it is the hanging site i visited that's left the biggest impression on me. You know, that high you get from reading a good horror story? That usually fades with time, but what I experienced there is as potent now as it was then. Let me tell you about the noose of the hanged men. And yes, that's men. Plural. About a year ago, I was in Nova Scotia on business, when I learned of a little-known hanging site down in a small port town about an hour and a half away from Halifax. Given my aforementioned interest in the subject, I decided to use my day off to visit. I had to go through a few hoops, but after speaking with the tourism office, I was put in touch with someone from the town's historical society who agreed to give me a tour. That's how I wound up late one cloudy afternoon standing at the edge of a seemingly abandoned property with Ainsley Murray as my own personal tour guide. A couple dozen keys jangled on Ainsley's keychain as she searched for one to unlock the front gate. The gate was tall and wide, with ornate curly cues ending in pointed spades, reminding me of a cemetery. Beyond it was an unkempt lawn with yellowed grass, reaching up about knee height, an overgrown stone path, and the main attraction, a partially collapsed brick building with a central watchtower. I was excited. Ainsley tried another key, but it wouldn't even go all the way in. Tell me we're not going to need all those keys. Ainsley laughed deepening the creases of her crow's feet. Oh, heavens no, dear. She tried her tenth, or was it her eleventh, key. These are all for different buildings. I just like to keep everything on the same chain, otherwise I always forget one. Oh. Don't worry, I've only ever gotten locked in twice, and my assistant Muriel got us out within a day or so, both times. There was hardly a need to resort to cannibalism. She grinned sheepishly. I snorted and replied, Ainsley, I like you already. Thanks, love, but keep your lustful thoughts to yourself. I've been happily married for 39 years. She winked and then tried the next key. Ah, I think this is the one. The lock clicked and the gate screeched open. Flakes of paint peeled off at the slightest touch and exposed a rusted underbelly. For a property supposedly maintained by a historical society, It sure didn't look like anyone had given it any kind of attention in ages. "'Watch your step, dear. The ground's a little uneven,' Ainsley warned. I was starting to feel it. That dread and excitement you get when you're watching a movie and you know a jump scare's about to happen. There was something in the air, and the way the wind blew through the brush and the crows cawed, like a storm of adrenaline was brewing. Ainsley motioned to the other end of the property. "'Let's start at the courtyard,' around back while the weather's still good. Then I'll take you inside and show you the cells. I replied, Sounds good. Hainsley led the way through the grass, not seeming to mind the fact that we couldn't see our feet. I guess it's easy to be brave in tall grass when you know there are no venomous snakes in the Canadian Maritimes. Something I wish she'd told me then, so I wouldn't have been quite as wary. So what do you know about this place? I asked. She glanced back at me and smiled. This prison was built in the late 1860s and was originally charged with holding prisoners in transit for public execution in Halifax. In 1875, Warden Murray, no dear, no relation to me, there are a lot of Murrays around these parts, claimed he'd been given permission to perform executions. What do you mean he claimed? She tapped a finger to her bottom lip. He alleged he'd received the go-ahead after a fire in Halifax, but there's no historical evidence to corroborate that. Now it could be that those records were destroyed over the years, perhaps during the Halifax explosion, perhaps during the Halifax explosion, but as far as we can surmise, there were no reports of a fire that year, nor of such a permission being granted. We circled around the collapsed part of the building. The interior walls were still standing, but the facade had crumbled like a sandcastle. Erosion due to flooding, Ainsley revealed later. They'd reinforced the rest of the structure, but had never bothered rebuilding, as the destruction had occurred during that pocket of time after the prison had been decommissioned, but before it had been deemed a local historic site. So, Warden Murray began performing executions here at the prison? Ainsley nodded. That's right, just around here. We turned the corner to the courtyard, The tall grass was interlaced with large patches of dry earth which surrounded the gallows. Years of salt air and rainwater had eaten away at the lumber like an old plywood shed, but it still stood. There was the base with stairs leading up to it, two large poles on either side, and a splintered beam stretching across. The rope was missing, but it had left a groove in the wood from the weight of multiple executions. Something was off. The door was missing. I asked. You said he started in 1875, right? She nodded. I inspected the structure closer. Maybe the door was blending into the rest of the wood? The more I looked, the more convinced I became that it was missing. There were no seams, just straight planks going all the way across. But there's no door, I said. My eyes scanned the overhead beam and landed on the spot where the rope would have hung, The groove and discoloration could only be seen along the top quarter. Were they hoisting in 1875? Ainsley smirked. According to reports, it was Murray's favorite technique. I felt chills of excitement intertwined with hints of dread. Here's the thing. There are a handful of techniques to hang people. By 1870, most of Canada started adopting the long drop technique. That's the one you're probably most familiar with. The prisoner's standing on the gallows with a noose around his neck. A door opens under him, he falls, his neck breaks, and he passes out. He suffocates while unconscious, which is considered more humane. Hoisting, on the other hand, is a lot more barbaric. The criminal stands on the ground, a rope gets tossed over a high beam, tied to his neck, and then they pull the other end to, you guessed it, hoist the person up by their neck. The process can be excruciatingly painful, according to reports from survivors. Yes, you can survive this, and it can last upwards of ten, sometimes even fifteen minutes if the person struggles in the right way. That's sick, I said. And yet you're smiling, she answered. Sorry, I I can't help it. She waved a dismissive hand. Don't worry, I'm not judging. She motioned to the courtyard. Hangings are a morbid business, but somehow they always draw people in. They were especially popular here, feeding a need from the local folk who couldn't make it to Halifax, and according to reports, the warden liked to hold surprise executions. He'd climb on top of the watchtower early in the morning and ring a bell to signal a hanging. Once the courtyard filled up, he'd order the kill. He'd watch from above, waving at the crowd like an emperor at the Colosseum. I looked at the watchtower and felt a knot in my stomach, as I saw three shapes looking back at me. I blinked and they were gone. Just the clouds, I told myself. Just dark clouds peeking from the other side of the tower, right? Ainsley, as though reading my mind, leaned in close and whispered, You know, dear, there's a rumor the tower's haunted by a ghost of many faces. I shuddered. You're making that up to mess with me. She shook her head. You can ask around for yourself. It's been spotted a few times in recent years. Last I hear, it was seen by a group of teenagers who jumped the fence. A few raindrops fell. I asked, what does it look like? She replied, some say a fisherman, others say a man in prison garbs. Everyone agrees its face changes every time you look away. One second he has a beard, the next he's bald with a scar across his eye, and so on. See? This kind of stuff. This is why I visit these sites. Does he attack? I asked. She shrugged. Some say those who see it are doomed to hang themselves. Others say it's all a myth. She raised her hands, palm up towards the sky. It's starting to rain. Let's head inside, shall we? I nodded. Gas lights were still mounted to the walls, but they'd run dry ages ago. Thankfully, Ainsley and I had the foresight to bring flashlights with us. We visited the cells with their low ceilings, tight walls, old chamber pots, and beds made out of dry straw, then the chapel, just a room with a cross, and finally, the offices. She shared more history about the region and the prison, but I won't bore you with the details, as they're not relevant to the story. "'I think you'll find this room quite interesting,' Ainsley said." as she stopped at the door to the watchtower. So far, the rooms had all been interesting, so I was eager to see why she felt that one was special. She fumbled with her keychain and began another round of guessing which key fit the lock. It didn't take too long this time. The lock clicked, she opened the door, and I immediately felt this odd suffocating feeling, like I just inhaled a cloud of volcanic ash. "'Welcome to the watchtower,' Ainsley said." There's nothing brave about stepping into a dark room in the middle of an old-century prison. Logically, there's no real danger. It's only scary if you trick yourself into believing it is. But really, an old building is just an old building. Even though I knew this, and even though I'd walked into many old buildings before without issue, I found myself hesitating. My feet were cement blocks, and the threshold was a force field pushing me back. I had no idea where the apprehension was coming from, only that it was overwhelming and palpable. "'Oh dear, worn out already?' Ainsley teased playfully. "'We can go back if you'd like.' I shook the nervousness from my body like a dog drying himself. "'No, sorry.' Lost in thought, I lied. I stepped inside and felt a wave of vertigo as I looked up. The watchtower was only about three stories high, but the spiral staircase leading up and the way the room narrowed closer to the top made it feel like it stretched as high as a lighthouse. It took me a moment for the lightheadedness to clear and for me to notice the object dangling halfway up. A noose. A very large noose. Squinting, I circled around, trying to figure out if it was a trick of angles or if it really was that large. The more I looked, the less it seemed like an optical illusion. Why, the words caught in my throat, why is that so big? Ainsley inhaled deeply as though to scream, but what came out wasn't a scream, it was a story. That love is the noose of the hanged men. You see, the key for this tower was actually lost for the longest time. It was only once the historical society began looking into the prison that it was discovered in the ruined west wing, in the warden's office. It's since been moved but there was a chest here. She pointed to a spot at the foot of the wall. The bricks there were brighter than the ones surrounding it. In it we found the warden's journals. He was... She narrowed her eyes. A very sadistic man. I circled around the room again, trying to look at the noose from every angle. There was something captivating about it, like a tire swing of death. Ainsley continued... He was obsessed with figuring out how many people he could hang with a single noose. I blinked. You mean, before having to replace the rope? She shook her head. No, not the amount of hangings he could perform. The amount of people that he could hang at the same time. The statement took my breath away. Hanging more than one person from a single noose at once? Could it even be done? She motioned to her neck. He started big. Ten people. He wrapped the noose around their throats and hoisted. It took five guards to lift the weight, but the cord snapped before they could see what would happen. He tried again with nine, and this time the cord held. Unfortunately, with nine shoulders pushing the heads apart, there were gaps. It was impossible to make the noose tight enough to hold all the heads in. People slipped through the cracks, making room for more people to slip through, until they all did. I tried to imagine what it felt like to stand in a semicircle with nine other people, and I swear I could feel the rope around my neck. I wondered how it felt to be lifted, certain you and everyone else was about to die, only to slip to freedom. Would it be a relief, or would it be horrific? So we started at ten, then nine, and went down from there? She nodded. He tried eight, same problem, then seven, and then six. His experiments caused some damage. The fewer people being hanged, the longer it took for someone to slip free. It all got worse when the subjects dwindled to five. Why's that? Well, by five, he was able to pull all prisoners high into the air before any of them were able to slip out. If you didn't die hanged, you died from the fall, she explained. So five was the lucky number? It was weird. I felt like we were being watched. I kept looking up at the top of the tower expecting to see someone staring back down at me. No, dear. He He wanted people to die from the noose, not the fall. He got stuck on five for a while. He was sure it was a question of tying the noose the right way. He was determined to make it work, but he had only a limited amount of prisoners to play with. I winced. What did he do when he ran out? She took a seat on the staircase and glanced up at the noose. The room, despite being exposed to fresh air from above, felt stale and suffocating Ainsley said Warden Murray began collecting people he didn't think would be missed homeless people, transients anyone who didn't have a family or wandered too close to the prison I rubbed the back of my neck damn now this may be unrelated but I've uncovered reports of whole families going missing around that time, their belongings untouched as though they'd been taken in the middle of the night I can't confirm good old Warden Murray was involved, but it is interesting how the timelines match up, purely conjecture on my part of course, but how many transients can you kill before you run out, and still with all that death, none of his five person experiments worked. It felt like a boa constrictor was trying to hug my esophagus, why was the air here so thick? Murray sounded like a sick bastard, my voice was hoarse, I was dehydrated. Ainsley nodded. He was. It took him months to give up on testing the noose on five people. He nearly lost it when he went down to four and they still got out. To make matters worse, no one survived the fall at four. At least at five, the first person was sometimes able to make it out with broken legs. At four, it was hopeless. They could hoist them faster, higher, and the fall was too high. As we talked, the noose above began swinging left to right in the breeze. Ainsley explained. He tried everything. Tightening the rope, speeding up the process, turning heads in every which direction he could try. Facing in, facing out, facing the side, side out, side out, everything. The swinging changed directions. It went forward and back, forward and back. She sighed. But it never worked. The prisoners would struggle. They'd twist free and splat on the ground. It was alternating now left to right, forward and back, swinging incessantly. He was a stubborn man. He started binding people by the waist, but it just took one person to slip out of the noose and then splat, all four together. Fear spread through my body in a sudden splash, as though I'd been dropped into a tub of ice water. The noose. The damn noose. The rhythm of its swing stopped being so regular. It went right, forward, right, back, left, forward, right, as though being pulled in every direction. I rubbed my neck, and I tried to inhale, but there was a weight on my chest. Are you starting to have trouble breathing? Hainsley asked. I gasped. Yeah, how did you know? She pointed up at the rope as she walked to the door. They say men can't stay in this room for more than a couple minutes because there's nowhere in this watchtower the noose can't reach. I can't explain it. I really can't but I was struck with the fear she'd leave and lock the door behind her. Her keys were jangling. She had her hand on the door. In my mind's eye, I could see her closing it. But as much as I wanted to run for the exit, I felt this invisible bond wrapped around my throat, holding me in place. "'Come on, let's get you out of here,' she said gently. Her soft voice and kind smile loosened the unseen noose, and I was able to jog out of the room, panting for air. She escorted me out, hand on my shoulder. I said nothing until we were outside in the cold rain. The number, I sputtered. What was the number? She held her palms to the sky and closed her eyes, inhaling deeply as though the rain were her lover. Hmm? The number of people you can hang on a single noose. She looked back at me, her smile never losing its warmth. Three, she said. With three heads, there's not enough wiggle room to escape. We left the property and said our goodbyes back in town. I couldn't get it out of my mind. The swinging noose. The vivid mental images of people hanging together. The sensation of something wrapped around my throat. Once I was alone, I undid my scarf and checked my neck. I expected to find rope burn or a bruise or something on my skin, but nada. On my way back to Halifax, I glanced back at the watchtower. I swear, even through the sheets of rain and dimming daylight, I could see three silhouettes staring down at me. I still visit hanging sites. That's probably never going to change. The only thing that changed is, every time I see a noose that's even slightly looser than the norm, I remember that little prison in Nova Scotia, and I feel a shot of adrenaline, and just the slightest, tightening in my throat. New on CuriosityStream, grab your lab goggles. We're out to find the world's coolest, loudest, and most in-your-face experiments. Wow, <laughs> that's impressive. See how hands-on science can change our everyday lives on oddly satisfying science. Plus, from goats to guard dogs, <laughs> hear surprising stories about the creatures that brought humanity to the next level. It's animals that changed history. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com.